as we're here. Um, yeah, I just wanted to share a little bit about ourselves so you can get to know us a bit. Um, it's myself, my wife Alicia, and Piper uh, is our little daughter. She's three and a half. Um, they are now back towards the kids' area. My wife should come back, I assume, um, since she's not a kid. Uh, and so she'll be here. And then uh, our good friend Steve and Andrea are planting with us. And then we have some new friends here, uh, Savak and Candace, who are with us. So they're in the same row we are, but I don't want to make them stand up. It's kind of embarrassing. Um, so I won't do that. Um, but yeah, I wanted to share a bit about, um, you know, Kevin actually asked, in what you share, can you share some of your calling and how God really called you um, to start up a new church and how that worked for you and how God called you to mission. And so I'm going to share my own story a bit. Um, and I'm hoping that as I do that, I share from a, a very common story that we've seen before, uh, that many of us have probably seen before, that if you're a follower of Jesus, you'd be really encouraged in your faith. You'd be uh, impassioned to uh, know him more um, and to be on mission here in Castaic and the surrounding area. Uh, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope that uh, you would be compelled to uh, trust him and see him. I am convinced he's the most compelling figure uh, in all of history. I'm praying that God will your heart trust him like did for me so long ago. Um, a little bit more about uh, our team. Uh, we all, at some point, ended up at Cowboy Mona. Anyone know where that is? Uh, a little uh, stupid to say. But uh, there's the, the five of us. I grew up um, in Redlands, California, which is probably about two and a half hours from here. Um, all four of us, in some way, came to trust Jesus early in high school or college, uh, around there, um, and ended up on staff
you sending your son to rescue us and save us this evening. It's incredible we have 10 places in here. Uh, song about Jesus, everywhere we go. Uh, would you tell us to truly understand uh, who you are, what you've done, all of us in here, whether we're all of you or whether we're not. Please uh, show us your truth, your name, your prayer. Amen. So, David and Eli, many of us are familiar with uh, all the gospel according to David and Eli. Uh, the story of David and Eli is found in uh, the chapter of 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 17. If you uh, have a Bible for free return there, I have a Bible screen if you don't, so don't stress. There are way too many details in the entire chapter for us to go through, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to have to pick and choose some. But I encourage you to go back and read it. Uh, There's a reason that for 2,000 years of the Christian church, it's been one of the most beloved stories, and for um, Jews throughout their history, it's been um, a wonderful beloved story as well. Um, But here's how I saw David and Goliath talk. This is what I thought before I what I thought the main message of David's life was. So tell me if you think this is familiar. Uh, David was a man of great faith. He did not trust in man or looks. He didn't look at earthly things, but he looked to God and trusted in God. And when he did that, he was able to conquer the giant. Now, we all have giants in our life and hard things that we face. So, you weirdos don't have faith like David had. Look at David and look at how he did. Now, go be like him and conquer the giants in your own life. Very That type of interpretation assumes the Bible is essentially about us and what we must do to please God. It's about us working harder, us getting our act together, us trusting God more, and doing better than we're doing right now. But Jesus tells us something incredible in one of the Gospels, John 5 39. He says the Bible isn't primarily God's. This is what he told us the religious people of his day. You search the scriptures, he tells the Pharisees and religious people, the Old Testament movie the scriptures back then, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is them that bear witness about me. They refuse to come to me, which you may have life. Jesus claimed the entire Old Testament scriptures were about him and pointing to and what he has done for that is what Christians call the gospel. So how in the world is David alive about Jesus, right? How in the world is it about the gospel? Let's walk through it together. First, we'll see that the people of God are in a helpless place. Uh, this story is, is just incredible. We have to see the first thing we've got to see. Uh, there are incredibly difficult circumstances that the people of God are in at this point. Um, this time, a little background, God just built himself primarily to the nation of Israel, um, not to everyone else. He did reveal himself to others, but primarily he's working through the nation of Israel, which is just people at that time. Um, we said that one, one of the many places in the Old Testament where the people of God were threatened by a foreign army at this time is the Philistines. So let's look at this together. This is the first verse. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battles, verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered in the camp of the battle of Elam, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath, 
stigma is incredibly important um, because it's a perfect staging ground for conquering all of Israel. So all of Judah. So what that means is what's at stake in this battle is not just oh they do the battle and boo they go home and they come back by another day. No, what's at stake is the entire age getting conquered. So if they lose this battle, it's a staging ground for all of Israel, all of Judah to be conquered and people will be taken as slaves. So me the Old Testament reader at this time, reading it, oh my gosh, everything is at stake. Like this is the biggest of battles and everything. This is the difference between freedom and slavery for the people of God. And we're thrown into the scene where the battles happen, happening. And then the Philistines bring out this behemoth of a guy, Goliath, uh, is his name. Not to be a pride at that time. Um, so Goliath was an incredibly bad dude, as you can He would have freed, he lied, he would have freed us out. Um, six cubits, because we have no idea what that is, is roughly about 10 feet tall. So I have another uh, picture over here that kind of helps us gauge. Um, so there, David was estimated to be a young man who's not estimated about five two. Um, Shaq is a guy who looks like a purple basketball going on there. Um, Shaquille O'Neal, seven foot one, most of us probably seen at some point. Goliath is estimated somewhere either eight foot eleven, depending on what interpretation, and the men would be more about nine foot six. So this is one bad man. Okay, he is huge. He's three people out. The shield we have, we can go over the details. The shield he has to cover his whole body. Um, his armor was the best money to buy. His armor alone probably weighed about 125 pounds. People say. So that's like three models in Hollywood, uh, more or less. Um, his helmet probably weighed about 15 pounds. So if you can imagine, I'm going to ask somebody who 15 pounds. You can imagine that's pretty heavy. So incredibly frightening man. The uh, author of your paints a uh, picture of me. Walks up to Israel and he mocks them and says, Bring someone here to fight again. They are freaked out. Uh, lastly, verse 16 says this happened for 40 days, um, which in the Bible can actually be a literal 40 days, or it might be another way to say, This went on and on and on and on. Uh, and there's no one, so it's going on and on, there's no one who's saved Israel. They are oppressed and helpless, and they're like, We are screwed, the whole nation getting taken over. What are we going to do? So how does this shadow, the gospel, how does this shadow what Jesus has come to do? Well, it really foreshadows that we ourselves uh, are helpless. The writer of this story is trying to evoke feelings out of us so that we feel the desperation that Israelites feel. We feel the weight of everything that's at stake here for our whole lives uh, and our livelihood. The rest of the scripture makes a clear picture that we ourselves, all people, are helpless as well. We don't have a physical enemy, a presence necessarily, although we have different families and things, of course, but we have a far worse enemy than the life of the Philistines. In fact, we actually have many enemies, but the worst enemy lives inside of us. The Bible calls that a sin. Another way to say what sin is is idolatry. It's another word in Scripture. Most people, this is why I heard growing up, most people see sin as breaking God's rules. 
Peter has promised in a lot of different ways. One of those ways is idolatry. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 1, verse 21. This is speaking of all of mankind. For although they knew God, though they did not honor, they did not honor him as God gave thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were right. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the immortal God for images of remembering mortal man and birds and animals creating us. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God, about God, for a lie. And they worshiped the sort of creature rather than the creator who blessed forever. Uh, the Apostle Paul says here implicitly, we were created to know God, to enjoy Him, and to live in harmony with other people around us. But at some point, we rejected that. We decided at some point we knew better what the Lord during the election and you would have known uh, what we mean. So why, why is this the case? Why, why can't we discuss civilly and lovingly? Well, I think idolatry actually explains what's going on here. You see, progressive people uh, tend to build their identity, build their worth on their own personal freedom, on not being constrained, on an authentic expression of who they are. There tend to be a lot more progressive people in urban areas like Studio City and other cities. Those are the, the wicked blue parts of the country, often. Uh, traditional people uh, tend to build their identity on responsibility, on their moral, personal morality and moral constraint, um, their financial responsibility, perhaps. Um, there tend to be many more of these people in suburbs and in those glorious, righteous red parts of the country, um, which sometimes end up being cows and stuff because they're out in the field. Um, uh, you know, everyone's like, the red part's so big. And it's like, those are grass and corn uh, out there. That's why. Not people, necessarily. Uh, that's why, you know, anyway, I'll stop explaining political maps. Um, but what happens? Both of these groups find their identity, their worth, their value, and their dignity in something other than God and his love and his goodness. They end up being like, I'm so glad I'm not that other group of people. 
Progressives say, oh, so glad I'm not like those stuffy, old, hypocritical, uh, self-righteous, traditional people. And traditional people think, oh, thank God I'm not like those wicked, uh, financially irresponsible people that just want to get gifts all the time and free freebies from everyone. I'm not like those moral, relativistic sinners. Both sides end up thinking... They're better than the other because they're building their identity not on God, His goodness, His mercy, His beauty. They're building it on something else. If you build your identity on something else other than God, you will inevitably look down on other people in some way. That can happen with race and ethnicity. My race, my ethnicity is normal. Others are bad, so you look down on them. It can happen with your political status and all sorts of things. And God says he cannot tolerate wickedness and sin and idolatry in those eyes. He will not tolerate idolatrous progressive people. He will not tolerate idolatrous traditional people. Um, did anyone watch 60 Minutes? I'll give another example. Anyone watch 60 Minutes last week? Am I the only person that watched? Okay. Um, Andrea, our friend, says I'm an old man because I watched 60 Minutes. Um, so no offense to older men in here. Um, I love 60 Minutes. There was this great story on last week um, that helps explain that, that, that even science is showing now that we're crooked and messed up in our hearts from the beginning. Um, they did a study last week on babies. Well, they didn't do a study last week, but they did a story on this scientific research happening at Yale, um, studying babies and morality. Now, you may think that's, you know, that's ridiculous. How are you going to study? Well, they set up these great... I'll put up a, a slide here, and I'll try and kind of paint you guys a picture um, if we have it up. There we go. Okay. So they did these studies with stuffed animals. They took five-month-old babies, and this is one of the parts. I really encourage you guys to go watch this online. Um, but they took five-month-old babies, and they held out two different treats. So on one side, on the, on the what is our left, I guess, is graham crackers, and the other side is Cheerios. And they held it out in front of the baby, and the baby chose one or the other. So this baby ends up choosing Cheerios. He likes Cheerios. Yay. Kids like Cheerios over graham crackers here. Um, and then what they did, go to the next slide, they took two different stuffed animals. They showed the orange cat eating the Cheerios, which the baby liked, and going, mm, you know, num, num, num. And they took, this is interesting, me explaining it. Um, what do stuffed animals do? And then they took the gray one, ate the graham crackers, and showed that it liked it. Then they took those away and go to the next slide. And then they put the two in front of them, and they said, which one do you like? And the baby continually chose, 87% of the time, chose um, the stuffed animal that liked the same treat they liked. So that one liked the Cheerios, I like you, yay. Um, go to the next slide. And then they showed the other cat, the cat that chose the treat they didn't like, the graham crackers, struggling to open this box that has a toy in it. So it would try to open it, it'd fall, try to open it, it'd fall. And then show the next slide. They took one of the new puppets, two new dogs, they took one of them, that puppet helped out the other one. So opened the box for him, helped him out, and then go to the next slide. The other puppet, as the guy was trying to help, slammed down the toy box. So you have one helpful puppet, one unhelpful one. Then go to the next slide. Then they held out the two puppets, one that helped and one that didn't help. 87% of the time, the child wanted the one that hurt the cat that didn't have the, uh, the puppet that didn't like the same treat. So they determined from this that we are, they said, there's no way children can learn this within the five months that they've grown up. Somehow we are hardwired to have bias against people that are different than ourselves. 
said somehow, this is baby idolatry what this is. This child is building his identity. It's, it's funny, but it's true. He's building his identity on, I like this animal that's like me. I dislike this one, and I want to see harm done to this one. It's incredible. Watch the whole thing. It goes through all... There's lots of other experiments, but this is the one that was interesting. So re- researchers conclude we have something. They, of course, had different reasons. They said... Uh, you know, biological evolution explains why we do this and, and so on and so forth, and I won't go there. Um, but this explains what the Bible said all along. We are hardwired and messed up and crooked in our hearts um, to not like people that are different with us. Uh, we are crooked at the core, the Bible says. And idolatry, Scripture makes clear in lots of places, will end up destroying you now. It will ruin your life in other ways. Either you'll get the thing that you're trying to get and it'll disappoint you or you won't get it and it'll drive you um, crazy. But eternally so, idolatry has grave consequences too. We don't have time for this, but the Bible describes two other incredible enemies. Satan uh, is the enemy of God and he seeks to have us not trust God. He seeks to encourage our idolatry and he is um, horrible for us. And then the other enemy is death. Uh, we all die, unfortunately, as a result of our sin. So back to the story. When you see Israel here, the writer wants us to feel ourselves, see our own helplessness, our own hopelessness, the own problem that lies within us. Next thing, I want to take a look at Saul, the king that wasn't. There's another reality the author wants us to uh, feel. When Goliath comes out, And Israel is fighting. This is the verses in verse 8. We'll put it up there as well. This is what it says. Goliath stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man, this is my Goliath voice, uh, that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. It was common in this day to select a champion, one that would represent the entire army. So Goliath has been uh, selected. He would fight on behalf of all the people. And he says, bring someone out who will fight me on your side. If I win, we take over everyone. If you win, uh, you will take over. So the question is, who should have been the one to step up for Israel? Who should have been the one to say, look, God is with us. He's chosen us. He's for us. He's rescued us. He will lead us. He is greater than this 10-foot freak could ever be. And he will be for us. The one that it should have been was Saul. He was the king. He had seen God do so much before. He had seen God uh, rescue him in battle and lead in battle. But he had failed. And there's this whole ironic picture that's painted throughout this whole chapter that that Saul is greatly dismayed and afraid and David, as we'll see in a bit, comes along and has faith and is excited and trusts God. And at even one point, um, Saul tries to give his armor uh, to David. It's almost a way of still trying to make it work and put things together and the armor's too heavy for uh, the little boy. So Saul incredibly fails and it leaves us what it leaves us longing for is a true king a true rescuer who will fight uh, for us but that foreshadows the reality that like Saul we have all failed as well Um, not only are we helpless from enemies outside of us and inside of us but there's a part of all of us isn't there that we know we are not who we really should be 
either. Um, we're not the version of ourselves that we should be. Um, Fiona Apple, if some of you know, uh, she's an artist. Um, and she wrote this song in 2005 called A Better Version of Me. And here's some of the lyrics uh, to that song. And of the games that I can handle, none are ones worth the candle. What can I do? I'm a frightened, fickle person, fighting, crying, kicking, cursing. What should I do? I make a fuss about a little thing. The rhyme is losing to the riddling. Where's the turn? I don't want a home. I'd ruin that. Home is where my habits have a habitat. Why give it a turn? Oh, mister, wait until you see what I'm going to be. Here comes a better version of me. Here it comes, a better version of me. Doesn't she kind of express what we all kind of know about ourselves? Um, That we're not David. We're not the hero. We're Saul far too often. Um, we not only fail God's perfect standards, but don't you fail your own standards? Don't you ever catch yourself going, why did I do that? I did that again. I thought I learned my lesson on that. And I continued to mess up. We are surrounded by self-help books. Um, but if you're like me, I tend to see Saul in the mirror far more uh, than David. So Israel is corporately lost and we are corporately helpless. But Saul individually shows us that we're individually in need and not who we should be. So in closing, God does something incredible here. We're at a place where Israel is helpless and hopeless. Saul is defeated. The whole nation and the people are at stake. And then God does something stunning and unexpected. Let's read verse 12. Uh, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him, because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and and this uncircumcised Philistine, cover your ears, no kids in here? Okay, we're good. Um, Shall be like the one... For one of them, for he has defiled the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord has delivered me from the paw of the lion, and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul ironically said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Stunning turn of events. A little shepherd has come on the scene. Of all places, from Bethlehem. And he's got amazing faith. Now, we... Here, Bethlehem, we go, oh, that's, that's a sweet place in all our Christmas songs. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. You know, it's like this wonderful place. No, this was Podunk Town. Okay, every city has some other city they look down upon. So for Castaic, I don't know, what is it? Uh, uh, Bakersfield? I don't know. Does anyone hate, hate Bakersfield? Um, for me in Redlands, it was Yukaipa. It was the town right next to us, and we called it Yuckatucky and uh, made fun of it. People in Fresno make fun of Bakersfield. You know, everyone has it. People in L.A. look down on everyone else. So um, this, whatever image that is of you, that's what Bethlehem was. It was not a glorious place. And he's the youngest son. So there's eight sons this guy has. You expect the biggest one to be the one, or maybe, you know, a little bit down the line. And the youngest one is the one with amazing faith. And he understood this time God was linked to the nation of Israel. So Goliath defying Uh, The nation of Israel was defying God, and he would not stand. He knew God well enough um, to know that. And again, we see Saul, the older king, lacking all faith. And this little shepherd boy from this podunk town has all the faith in the world. Amazing. Do you see who this is foreshadowing? 
Do you see whose name is being whispered here? An unexpected rescuer from Bethlehem? A king coming to rescue his people from all our enemies? We might expect him to come in power, but as we'll see later on this Christmas season, he comes in meekness and humility. Do you see who this is starting to echo? Many of us know the rest of the story. Let's continue a little bit more. Verse 40, Then David took his staff in his hand and chose about five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in hand as he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. In front of him, When the Philistine looked at David and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Am I on punked here? What's going on? This is not, come on, this is not true. The Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David says to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. They never tell you that in... uh Sunday school. They don't, they don't share that part. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. I don't even need to add much here, right? This is awesome. What if this little kid is saying these crazy things? He takes five stones. He's up against Andre the Giant, huge guy. And Goliath just laughed at him like, where, where are the cameras? I'm on candid camera here. What's, this is ridiculous. Are you serious? And David again shows immense faith. This is like Game of Thrones, Braveheart stuff is going to happen here. Um, it's great. So let's see. The rescuer defeats the greatest enemy. Keep reading in verse 48. When the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put in his hand his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. And this is awesome. If you're a little boy, you're like, yeah, you know. And and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. Notice what the author wants to tell us again here. There was no sword in the hand of David. This was miraculous. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, killed him, and cut off his head uh, with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead and fled, and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines. So awesome, awesome picture. David runs up, slings a rock, sinks right into Goliath's head. He falls down. Um, and then we get the unfriendly school picture of David cutting off Goliath's head. Um, back in the day, they drew pictures about this and. uh other times. So here's one from 1872. Look at that. Yeah, he's on the ground. There, all sorts of stuff happening. David holds up his head. Awesome. <laughs> Love it. Uh, but again, what, what, what is this all about? Is this just up, um, uplifting? Yay, woo, the little guy defeats the big guy. What's going on? No, this is about a far greater rescue. This is a miraculous victory. Remember, the author said there was no sword in his hand. This is miraculous. This is a shocking victory. This is amazing. Look what happens after. That last verse says, All the army pursued the Philistines to defeat them decisively. Not only has one one battle been won, but this one person 
has saved all of Israel. One guy does the work, the whole nation gets the benefits. One little unexpected rescuer does it all, everyone else gets rescued. So what's going on? Well, if you've been taught a moralistic version of Christianity, then you've been taught the Bible is primarily about you and what you must do to please God. Then you'll come away from the story and go, I should be like David, I should have great faith, why, don't, why can't I do that to conquer my giants? But that never lasts very long. Moral effort and stirring yourself up doesn't last for long. But if the Bible is primarily about Jesus and what he's done to rescue us, then it changes everything here. You see, you would then see yourself as the people of Israel here, helpless and defeated by your own enemies of sin and idolatry in your own heart, the only ways you fail to be the person that you should be, who God calls you to be. But just at the moment that we are at our worst, God raises up the unexpected one from Bethlehem. You see the one coming. He's a perfect example for us, trusting God perfectly in everything and going the battle to win the victory for us. But it's not about David. If you know the rest of the Bible at all, David goes on to fail unbelievably. To ever, to, that, this, that this is ever made primarily about go be like David is a sham because he goes, sleeps with another man's wife, covers it up, kills the guy, and then acts like nothing happened for the longest time. So if David is our example, ultimately, then we are in big trouble. But you see, this is about Jesus. Jesus, born in Bethlehem, lived a perfectly sinless life. Not only was 100% man and human in every way, but he was God coming down to earth. He perfectly trusted God his entire life. He didn't fail like David did later on. He didn't fail like Saul did. He did thousands of miraculous things while on earth. And then he looked at the immense enemy of our idolatry, of our rebellion against him, of building our life on things other than him, of us betraying him, and he went to the cross to defeat that enemy. He looked at Satan, his enemy, he looked at death, and he went to the cross. But he won that victory not by sinking a rock into the enemy's head, but by sinking himself into the cross for us. He defeated Satan and sin by giving his life, his perfect life on the cross for us. And he gives all the victory to us. All the benefits come to us. He rises from the dead. And if you are in here and you follow Jesus and you trust him, all our sin has been wiped away and forgiven because of him. And you stand righteous, holy, perfect in his sight because of him. Not because of what you've done, but because of him. If you're not a follower of Jesus in here, this is what's offered in Christ. This is what's offered in Jesus. Only then when we see the amazing love, the amazing grace, the amazing way He's rescued us in spite of us, can we then be free not to build our identity on other things. Not to build our identity on whether we're a progressive person, a traditional person, whether we have enough money, whether we have enough things. I see the Bible is not primarily about us and what we must do to please God. But it's primarily about Him, the stunning love and grace He has to rescue us and bring us to Himself at all costs to Himself. And so, when you, let's go back to that picture, when you see David, maybe it's a little gruesome, especially maybe for the ladies, I don't know. 
But when you see that gruesome picture, this is what we should see. You should see Jesus holding up your sin and saying, it is done. I killed it. It is gone in my sight. And holding up Satan, in essence, ultimately defeated. He will not win. He still has some power, but he is ultimately defeated. The death blow has been given. And we should see death defeated. All that work done, and we will someday live with him forever. Don't you see, when you look at that picture, when you think about Jesus, there's nothing he hasn't done to love you and to rescue you. There's nothing he held back to defeat all your enemies for us and to love us. When we get this deep in our hearts, that's when we're able to start being free. To not live on any other identity, to not live based on anything else, but to truly be who God has called us to be. And when you get this, this ties back in to how God called us uh, to start a new church in Seducy. When we get this, there is nothing better, and we have to share it with other people. That's the whole reason I want to be uh, a pastor. That's the whole reason we're doing what we're doing. There are so many people who have no idea, who think Christianity is primarily a just a set of rules to follow and it's a bunch of hypocrites and everything and there is truth to some of those caricatures but it's not the main picture. It's not the biggest thing. The biggest thing is a God that you wouldn't believe who's done all the work on our behalf. So let me pray uh, and I'll close us out. Father, there are um, so many ways uh, that my heart is selfish and I tend to build my identity on other people whether they like me and not being um, stuffy and moralistic uh, myself and Lord I fail so much at the person you've called me to be I thank you uh, for the story of David and Goliath which so clearly illustrates it's about God raising up an unexpected one to rescue us to save us and to win an incredible victory that we couldn't imagine. Thank you that you didn't stay far from us, but you came near to us and your son. Thank you that he came to rescue us and save us. Lord, help us to see that clearly. Helps us see the amazing love and stunning grace you've given to us. I pray that for all of us, whether we know you and love you and have for a long time, or whether we're just discovering and seeking. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord one more time this morning. We want to see, we want to see, we want to see Jesus with We want to see, we want to see, we want to see Jesus with We want to see, 
We want to see, we want to see Jesus lifted high. We want to see, we want to see, we want to see Jesus lifted high. Step by step we're moving forward. We want to see Jesus lifted high. We want to see, we want to see, we want to see Jesus lifted high. We want to see, we want to see, we want to see Jesus lifted high. We want to see, we want to see, we want to see Jesus lifted high. Praise you, Jesus. Amen. All right. Praise God. Thank you so much, DJ. We'll just praise God for you and going to be praying for the church start in Studio City. Uh, what we do here at Hope as we conclude is this. We uh, want to give you an opportunity to talk about these things that we just studied. And so as we grab a cup of coffee and a donut at the back table... Uh,